season two of the JKR podcast powered by Black Cobra Sports. My name is Jay Shriglin and I'm the host. Let's dig into today's episode after a word from our sponsor. Today's episode sponsor is Mind Baseball, located in Dallas, Texas. Their bats are made from 100% European beech wood, which allows for more density, which then leads to more power. I mean, who doesn't want more power? We all know chicks dig the long ball. Multiple studies prove that beech outperforms maple, birch, and ash that you're probably used to swinging. Beech wood straight grains mean for less breaks, and mine baseball exceeds the MLB regulations in that category. Are you also frustrated with seeing the dried paint spots on your barrel? Mine Baseball uses a family secret technique that leaves a perfect finish every time. If you set their bat next to another brand, you will make sure that you see the difference. Lastly, they also use a built-in grip to reduce vibrations. It is the same technology that is used to reduce recoil in rifles. Make sure to check them out. Go find them on Instagram, TikTok, YouTube. Um, on Instagram, their username is at mine, M-I-N-E, baseball. Check them out, but let's dig into today's episode. And welcome back to the JKR podcast. Today we have travel baseball powerhouse Texas 12 founder Greg Bennett on the JKR podcast to start our Texas 12 baseball series on the podcast. Coach, super pumped to get you on the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks, Chase. Thanks for having me. And I look forward to talking to you about our our brand, really. Not awesome. just our, not just saying our, you know, our baseball, but our brand. I look forward to it. Okay. And obviously, like I said here before, I mean, I have, I've had a couple of your guys' players here on the podcast and I've heard so you so many great things. You guys are one of the travel baseball teams that I follow quite a bit. Um, so, you know, I figured I'd, I'd reach out to you guys, you know, a couple months ago, um, get this thing rolling, kind of see what we could do here. Um, so excited for this four or five week series, you know, getting you some other coaches, um, some of your guys' players and alumni here on the podcast. So pumped for that. Uh, but before we dig into, you know, your baseball career in terms of how starting the Texas 12, your coaching career, stuff like that, I have one question I like to ask everybody that gets on the podcast, and that is, for those who don't know you, how would you introduce yourself? Who exactly is Greg Bennett? Well, Jason, I thank you for that question, and I know that you've probably never had a response like what you're getting ready to have. Uh, I know that if, you know, whoever's listening is expecting a certain thing and you're not going to get that either. I'm an unusual person in a lot of ways and how I would describe who I am is really uh, important and speaks to that. And, and I get teased about this actually within the 12, I get teased about this quite a bit. Uh, we have some coaches that call me slash and, and they call me doctor, coach, father, all this other stuff. And, so how I would introduce myself is that, first of all, I'm a believer. I, I'm very serious about my faith. So I'd say I was a Christian if you're asking me who I am. But if you ask me who I am in the respect of my professional background, uh, I am the founder of the 12, but I'm also the founder of something called the Sport Marketing Association. Uh, and the reason I'm the founder of that, as well as the 12, the 12 will come into play here in a minute, obviously, but I'm a professor at Texas A&M and I'm a professor of sport marketing. And so I'm an academic by training. 
but I'm also a baseball person by training in my baseball background. And what's interesting is when I became a professor or when I was coaching, I did the PhD as a fallback type of thing, right? And I've been falling back on that now for about 30 years. And I've been a professor at uh, Auburn, Southern Miss, University of Florida, and now Texas A&M. And, and I've been at Texas A&M now basically about the same timeline of, of the 12. And there's, if you know anything about Texas A&M, you know that the, the number 12 is a sacred, important, uh, traditional number. Everything here is about traditions. And so when I chose the name as a marketing professor, uh, I chose the name that would rep be representative or fit, you know, the community that we're in and what we do here and the characteristics that are synonymous with the 12th man. And so that's the, that's one of the reasons behind the brand or the naming of the brand. There's three or four other reasons, the 12 disciples, the number 12, the 12 tribes of Israel. There's lots of things that fit into that, that fit us as an organization and our mission and philosophy. But if I'm describing myself, it's a pretty unusual situation, especially in your circles that you're going to be talking to people. A lot, most people are just baseball people. I'm really a, uh, a trained academic and a professor that happens to do and has built this program, you know, into what it is. So sorry to be so long winded on that one. That's going to be a little bit different, but that's, that's who I am professionally. Okay, so let's dig into yourself a little bit professionally before we dig into the Texas 12. So okay. um, I saw as I was in, kind of doing a little bit of research, I kept popping up, you know, Greg Bennett, professor, you know, Texas A&M. And I kept seeing those other universities you mentioned, Auburn and the Southern Miss as well. Yeah. Um, going through, saw those. Uh, so just take us through, I guess, when you're those for maybe how you got started as a professor. You know, maybe you're, you said you were going through your PhD as a fallback. So, you know, maybe yeah. when that got started and just your experience as a professor uh, teaching sports marketing. Yeah. So I was coaching at Auburn in uh, 1994. And I was, I was really fortunate to be working with my boss there was Hal Baird. And Hal Baird is, you should look him up and put him on a podcast because he's a remarkable human being and he's in the ABCA Hall of Fame. He's in all of these Hall of Fames and so forth. So that was my boss at Auburn and a remarkable man because he's a guy, if you met on the street or you have on this podcast, he, he could pass as being the, the president of, of the university because he was so eloquent and articulate and how he spoke to people and interacted with people was, for me, was remarkable but yet at the same time, he ran and managed a, a baseball program where the four years I was coaching at Auburn, we went to the College World Series twice. In fact, we played Rice one year, Lance Burton was on the team, you know, which has come full circle because we're around Lance a lot now with, you know, recruiting and things like that. But, but, but the point is I was working for him and I said, I said, Coach Baird, I want to, you know, I want to go and get my PhD, which he was all for and was wanting me wanted to help me through that process. And he did. And I told him I was going to fall back on that. You know, if I, if I couldn't get into coaching and doing coaching on the collegiate level. And, and what's interesting is when I finished my PhD, I told him, I said, coach, I need to go be a head coach somewhere or, or, you know, pursue something else. I had two really interesting opportunities that 1998 ish, 99 year, to become head coaches at universities, but it's long story short, those opportunities, if I, it'd take us an hour for me to tell you the stories behind those two, but I'll give you one quick anecdote. One of the places I would have to teach three classes in the fall, three classes in the spring, coach baseball, recruit, have 2.3 scholarships. 
the field was 12 miles from campus. I could go on and on, but I would have been a head coach, right? I would have been a head coach. And so that that's where I was at in life. And then Southern Miss had a job opportunity where I could work with Corky Palmer and be his one of his assistants and do that. So I chose that option, did that for about a year. We had my oldest son, Matthew, who's now in the Rays organization. And he, you know, I, I did that for about a year. And I was the low man on the totem pole. So I was opening the field for teams when they came in. I was responsible for making the field work and doing all the grunt stuff, plus being a professor of, in their coaching and sport administration program. And I just finally went, am I going to be a father or am I going to be a coach? Because the money's coming from the good money, as you know, and the system and in, in NCAA, which that's getting ready to change, which I think is fabulous. But I was the low man on the totem pole, which meant volunteer at Southern Miss makes no money. And my money was coming through teaching and it was a very good salary. So I went that route, wanted to raise my son and be around and do all those things and not have to worry about on campus recruiting the field, opening the field for other workouts, camps, all that stuff. And so I did that and got out of baseball, frankly, for a while. I did very well um, academically. And so I just kept going down that path. University of Florida had a job. I didn't think I was qualified. I applied, ended up getting it. And that's a remarkable place. University of Florida is a great academic institution, great place. I loved it. I especially loved the weather. Uh, but then this job came open and the guy that was doing the hiring had pitched at Utah. And the guy that was over him had been at UF for 14 years. And they basically put together a package that, I could not say no to. And I've been at Texas A&M for those 20 years since. Interesting point to that. I got here. I was here about a year. I hadn't been in any coaching at all. None at Florida, although Andy Lopez was there. I knew him very well and did some work with him. But I had been out of coaching completely because I was raising my children at the time. And I got here and about a year into it, my wife would poke me in the stands because I, I wouldn't say anything, but I was it was just crazy what I was wanting to do with my oldest. And she said, you're going to have to do this. There's a funny story with Bill Sutton, who was with the NBA, who could he's another guy you should get on the podcast. He's fabulous. We had a standing bet that I would coach my son. I said I wouldn't. He said I would. I ended up coaching my son. And that's how the 12 started is I coached him for a year in Little League. And if you want, I can go into that um, now. But that's that's sort of the what you asked me at that point. So I'll stop now. And, okay. And... All right. So let so let's give it a couple questions before we dig exactly into the start of the Texas Twelve. Yeah. So I'm um, going to you know you're at, at Texas A&M now at Florida before Southern Miss. Um, I'm missing one. What was that for? Auburn. Auburn. Yep. Um, yeah. So you know going through and being a professor at you know these multiple different universities. Um, you know, I've actually never had a professor on the podcast, so I've got a couple questions <laughs> here I've never really asked anybody. So um, when you are, you know, going and, and teaching at different um, universities, like, is it very similar um, in the way that a lot of universities are ran? Or do you kind of see a difference when it comes, you know, going from, you know, Florida, A&M, Auburn, Southern Miss? Um, what does that look like through your eyes as the professor? Yeah, it is. It is very different. That's a that's a great question, actually, Jace. It's it's very different in a couple of ways. You know, A&M and Florida and certain schools like A&M and Florida uh, are very similar as far as mission research and those types of things. 
and but they're very different when it comes to the types of students there there was a real uh florida is a different as a state than texas for instance and it would be the same as indiana um, where you're at uh, those are very very different uh the students are very different uh because culturally they're being raised differently right and whereas the the students at at the university of florida were incredibly bright but they were also incredibly because we had a ton of students from South Florida. And then we'd have a really there was a real northern influence um, in at the University of Florida. And so and then they had at the time, the time I was at Florida, there was no question. It was by far, in my opinion, the best athletic program in the country. And that was because the AD at the time was a guy named Jeremy Foley. And he is, I've been at all of these institutions, University of Tennessee. I went to Tennessee Tech. It's where I played. I can go on and on. But out of all the ADs that I've ever seen, he was by far the best one for multiple reasons. So I was there in a really glorious, I mean, they won. Billy Donovan was there. They had Spurrier. They won championship after championship because he's his leadership. And so I, the interaction between what I do with athletics is, is always there. And we know all the things that are going on and can look at and see things that are going on athletically. So I left that, the best athletic program in the country, to come to one that was, you know, very different. It was in the Big 12 at the time. They were and also ran really, would win every so often. And, and then eventually when we came into the SEC, it's been really interesting for me to see how our athletic program has changed and how um, uh, the football program in particular has changed to what it is today and how us as the academic side interacts and interfaces with all of that. Um, and I can tell you that those two schools are very different than Auburn and, and, and A&M and Auburn have the same type of students but AM has a whole lot more money uh, and a whole lot more students than Auburn has. Auburn operates on a very, very limited, like if you rank the SEC and who has the money, there's a big difference in, in our money at AM than there is at Auburn. There's also a very big difference academically between AM and Auburn uh, from, from being an AAU institution to where Auburn is at, rankings and all those other things. And then if you get into where I went before, Tennessee Tech, which would be similar to Sam Houston, SFA, et cetera, those are, I'm trying to think in Indiana, Bradley, and, you know, the schools that aren't a major Division One school, the students are going to be different. The money is going to be different. The emphasis on excellence is going to be different. Uh, but when you look at a, a school like A&M, uh, Florida, UCLA, you know, those types of schools, they're very, very similar. The students are probably different culturally, if that makes sense. That's a very long answer to your to your question. But that's yeah, those things are very different. Now, there's not a lot of difference in what I do. So what I deliver at or what we deliver as a curriculum at Texas A&M is going to be similar to what they do at Sam Houston, to what they do at Tennessee, to what they do in Indiana, to what they do at Florida. It's going to be very similar. Yeah. So what are those courses that you're, you're teaching? Let's say, you know, the spring semester just started. So what, like, what are the different courses that you're teaching throughout the year? Well, I teach a couple of courses a semester and of course I'm responsible for a, a, a intense research program, but I will, this spring I'm, I'm, 
uh, right now I'm listed as teaching a um, fan behavior class for undergrads and a applied marketing strategy class for undergrads. And at A&M, we, we just revamped our curriculum. We would argue it's the best one in the world based on what we did and how we, the process we went through that. Uh, but basically our students go through two streams. One stream is they're going to get six classes of marketing and the other stream, they're going to get six, what we would, we've couched them as management classes. And so our student, when they get done, they're going to have 12 classes. Six of them are going to be in marketing and six of them in management. And so they're going to be trained well enough in those business functions to work for, you're from Indiana, right? So let's just say the Pacers, they're going to be able to be hired by the Pacers in either one of those streams and be able to be effective and, and be somebody that's been trained well to do the things that the Indiana Pacers on the business side want them to do. And that's what we're doing. We're just training them to run business, sport business. Uh, and that's what we're doing. So yeah. that's, that's how they would do it. And that's what our curriculum looks like. There's not many people in the world that are doing anything like that. And, but for the most part, people are going to, you know, if you're at Indiana, Indiana is going to have a curriculum that's similar. They are not going to have it in that depth probably, but they're going to have similar courses. Yeah. So for you on the academic side, how obviously at Indiana, just a little background, we're considered, I guess, the, the number four sports marketing and management program in the country. Uh, me going through some of the classes, I'm not going to vouch. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm not going to vouch for it, but the classes are, you know, somewhat easy. I mean, I'm still allowed you know, <laughs> to do six episodes a week on a podcast, do some internships. I mean, the classes aren't, you know, too difficult. But um, from talking to professors here at Indiana, um, they've said that the sports marketing, sports management, just industry when it comes to the academic side of learning at universities has evolved, you know, so much these past, you know, 20 years, kind of the same uh, timeline of your career. Um, so for you, like being on that, the actually teaching side of it, how have you seen this academic side of the sports marketing, sports management world? How have you seen this evolve? Like, what has that landscape change been like since you've started teaching? Well, I think, yeah, that's a great question too, Jason. I know all the people at Indiana and there's, there's good friends there and uh, I see them periodically at conferences and so forth. And, and, you know, Indiana was when I formed the Mark Fort marketing association or founded it, Indiana and created it there. We had Indiana people at the first conference and et cetera. So they've been there since the time, but that's a great question. And it has evolved. And what I would suggest to you is it's evolved very drastically, very quickly, almost like a technological advancement. Uh, the research that we do now is really, really well done. It's very theoretically driven. It's very similar, actually, to, you know, what business uh, scholars put out. Whereas 20 years ago, we we couldn't, we, we really weren't the same. Although 20 years ago, when I was at Florida teaching, I taught MBA students as well. We had a dual degree, an MBA degree, and a sport management degree that people would do across two years. So I, I taught those students, and we, and there are places where our program is in the business school, which is really where it belongs. But it has evolved to where our work is really well done. It's really well respected in the sports industry. And frankly, we're training our students as well as any business program. You know, if you wanted to go into marketing and Procter & Gamble is going to hire you to come out and do their job, we're doing the exact same thing they're doing. It's just that all of our content and our context is really driven towards the sports industry. So a student learns something, but they're 
they're learning the context of it. And what I would suggest to you is that our students, once they're done, if they go through and really, you know, learn the material and harness the material well, they can work in any marketing. My students that I teach in marketing, I would put them against an, an undergrad in marketing to do marketing stuff because we basically are teaching marketing in the context of sport. So it's evolved. It's a very rigorous um, evolution quickly. And I would suggest to you that we are, our, our discipline as a whole is, is really remarkable. It's very strong. Uh, the Sport Marketing Association is very healthy. NASM is another organization, very healthy. And I think we're very well respected and the places, I'll just say this, I'll end with this, and the places that have tried it in business, which you're not going to do that at an A&M or in Indiana, but the places that have actually put our sport marketing or management people into the business school, those people are killing it. They're as good as any of the business professors and scholars at those places. So that should tell you that it's the evolution has been really, and 20 years ago, it wasn't even close to that, but it is now. Yeah. I know when I was, uh, so I, when I went through my whole application process, you know, I just only applied for schools in state, you know, I didn't want to pay, you know, yeah. however much it is for out of state. And, you know, Indiana was the only school that the sports management, sports marketing program, you know, wasn't in the business school. Um, so yeah. when I was going, like, you know, sometimes, you know, when I go out, you know, I'm talking to some people on campus, I'm like, oh, I'm a sport, you know, sport management major, this and that. And they're like, oh, is that, you know, in the business school? I'm yeah. like, oh, it's not. Yeah. Like, I mean, we're learning, you know, yeah. the business aspects of things, but, you know, just like you said, yeah. in that sports context. But let's go ahead. Let's move away to baseball. You know, how we got connected, kind of, you know, the reasoning. Yeah, you're going to start, Jay. Sorry, Jace, I want to interrupt you on that. You're going to have to cut this out and make it a separate podcast. The the academic part and get some of my buddies and you could do a separate series of podcasts on those guys. Yeah. And get, I, Anyway, I'm, go ahead. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure obviously you talk about, you know, all those connections you have. I'm sure that would be, you know, a pretty, pretty well listened to uh, series there. But moving into the actually baseball side of things, you started there as a coach. Well, I guess I'm not going to say started, but you were a baseball coach there in Auburn there in 1994, mm -hmm. like you mentioned. Um, so take us through, I guess, when you, I guess, stop playing baseball there at Tennessee Tech, uh, go, in, go ahead and kind of transition to the coaching career. Take us through that a little bit and, you know, what that transition was like going, becoming a coach. So I played at Tennessee Tech, had a good career there. It's my alma mater. I love it. It's also just happens to be my hometown, Cookville, Tennessee. Very proud of my hometown. That's where Mac Brown's from, Judah and the line. There's a lot of good folks from, from Cookville, Tennessee, but uh, I'm very proud of that. And then I coached four years of high school, and then I went back to Tennessee Tech to coach. Uh, then I went from Tennessee Tech to Auburn, was fortunate enough to work with how, as I've talked about, but I also that I was the only coach on our staff, Jace, interestingly enough. And, and again, I coached there four years, two years, college world series. I thought it was easy. Frankly, I thought this coaching junk's easy. We go to the world series all the time, you know? Um, and I was fortunate enough during those four years to work. I, I'm the only coach on that staff that has not been the head coach at Auburn. Um, the other two coaches I worked with, Tom Slater and Steve Renfro, have both been the head coaches at Auburn. And Tommy's and uh, he, he's worked for the Yankees, uh, uh, Mets. He's been the head, the hitting coach for the Mets Big League Club, and now he's uh, Martin, the Marlins guy. And he's Tommy's probably my best friend in the baseball business. Remarkable coach. But anyway, both of those other guys ended up following how Tommy or uh, 
Steve first, and both of those are great men, great guys. They were, Hal was very influential on my coaching background, but even more so as a man and really probably as a professor. Uh, Tommy and Steve, Tommy, uh, Steve was very influential on my, on me as a man and growing spiritually. And then I would suggest that Tommy, again, our friendship, we talk regularly. He's a remarkable, remarkable guy and a great hitting coach. So I was coaching there, fell back, but I went my first year, I was still fighting to stay into coaching. And I coached with Corky Palmer, who's passed away recently at Southern Miss. Incredible dude, very different dude than the other guys, but incredible dude. And of course, Scott Berry was at Meridian at that point. Now he's the head coach at Southern Miss. And so that was, those were three great years while I was there. And then of course I got the job at Florida, no coaching, got the job here, no coaching uh, until I came here in 2004, my oldest Matthew uh, was eight and that's when the 12 came about, um, about that year. So you want the background on that? Oh, well, we can, I, we can go ahead and dig into that, I guess, in a little, in a little bit. I mean, I, I want to make sure, like, obviously I want to make sure the conversation flows well, but I kind of want to, yeah. you know, I don't want to, you know, dig into the 12 and then, you know, forget a couple of questions I had for you. All right. Uh, well, that's what you want, brother. But, but you said that, you know, when you were coaching at Auburn, you know, you go two out of the four years to the College World Series and you think coaching is easy. But you yeah. said, you know, at that moment you thought coaching was easy. So when did that happen? When did it hit you that maybe, you know, coaching wasn't an easy industry to be in? When did that hit you? And take us through maybe some of those stories. Yeah, and I think that's relevant to the 12 now. Um, so when um, – so the first year I was there, College World Series. Second year I was at Auburn, 95. Uh, we were number one in the country for most of the year – and we lost to Oklahoma, and at that point in time, they were regionals. Um, I don't think it was a super at this point. And then Oklahoma went Redmond, or I think was their left-handed pitcher that was such a phenomenal player. Uh, they beat us that year, so we didn't go the '95 year, even though the team was better, ranked number one parts of the year. Uh, that was a really, really good baseball team at Auburn, but we didn't go to the College World Series. And then the, the way that I first started noticing how difficult this is, even though, again, in 97, we went back. In 96, we were terrible um, at Auburn. And this is, again, on the hills of 94 World Series. 95 should have been a World Series team. We might have actually been good enough to win the World Series that year. And then 96 um, – you know, I remember it went so bad and there's lots of reasons for it. But one was we had really good, we had some good players and they were good dudes and they just weren't, they were more role players on the 94, 95 team. And so they weren't ready to lead as much. And so it was kind of a tough, tough year. Um, but I remember towards the end of that, Coach Baird looked at me and he goes, this, this year, is more valuable for you if you ever go into coaching long term this year is more valuable to you than the first two years and and what he meant by that was you know it's not it's not this easy to go to Omaha <laughs> Omaha is really a difficult thing uh to to, to obtain and you got to have a lot of things happen and and of course we had obviously we had really good players and so it was almost of a of a mindset that you, if you think it's like this, that you just coach and you win and you, 
go to Omaha, you're, you're sadly mistaken. And he said, this is the year that you really need to, to use because everybody's happy when you win. And there's really not a whole lot of learning that can take place. But when you lose, um, you have to start questioning what you're doing as a coach and a man and what your players are doing and how you're practicing. And you have to, you have to figure it out. Now, remember, 96, that's 96, 97, we went back to College World Series. That's where Lance Berkman was with the Rice and so on and so forth. And so you, you, have to, you, you have to understand that's how it turned out. So I thought it was easy when I left Auburn, except for that one year. And I got out of it after a year at Southern Miss. And we were good at Southern Miss, too. Um, but not as good as Auburn, and obviously. But still, we were good. And so I was like, okay, this is coaching's a lot of fun. You know, it's just great and easy and so on and so forth. But the 96 year, Hal was correct. Coach Baird was correct. Um, it's not easy. It's very difficult. And especially if you care about what you're doing, it's not easy. It's, it's very, very difficult. Um, and so you learn more when your team is not very good. And when they don't have leadership, you, you learn maybe, well, maybe when I recognize that 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 particular athlete as a role guy, I can go alongside of him and teach him not what it means not to be a role guy and figure out how he can lead. And, 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 you know, we were ginning, we were 95 or 94 world series, 95 should have been in the world series, 96 sucking, you know, that's basically what it was. And there were a lot of good players on that team. It just, it just didn't work. It didn't. So it helps you as a coach. If you're humble and if you, um, recognize where you failed, you become a better coach. But it's not easy, especially if you're Auburn and you're trying to go to the College World Series, right? Yeah. So for your four years there at Auburn, your year at Southern Miss, um, I'm sure you got to you know experience maybe that recruiting landscape a little bit from the 1990s. Now going through these past 17 years and kind of seeing how the recruiting landscape has changed. I mean, I know I'm talking to a lot of you know class of 2025, 2026 players who are already committed, which I'm sure probably wasn't the case back in the 90s. I mean, that was a little bit before I was born, so I'm not gonna uh, go out on a limb and completely say that. But with you, you know, go spending those five years at the at the college baseball level. Uh, kind of being on that side of things and now transitioning to being in the travel world, travel baseball world. How have you seen the recruiting landscape change these past so many years? Oh man, Jace, that's a, Oh, um, well, I coached longer than that cause I was at tech as well, but anyway, the, so it's very different than it was. And now the interesting part is I'm on the other side of it, right. Where uh, we're trying to deal with all this. And, and I would suggest to you in the last year uh it's it's transitioned again so we would go look you know we pl we were playing in the spring and high school kids were playing in the spring too back then in the 90s so you really you might go see high school kids every now and then but the problem was they played on tuesday and friday and we do too and so it was like how do you do that and so sometimes steve i remember steve was our off-campus guy and our main recruiter and he would go and watch people play on a Tuesday, you know, and miss. He wouldn't be at our Tuesday game, but but it's, it was very rare because Friday was SEC weekends. Same thing as Southern Miss. It'd be rare to go watch a high school game, which is one of the reasons I built the 12 for my son. Uh, initially, we started with him because I wanted him to be recruited, and I knew what was involved with that. Um, so fast forward, you know, 
I don't know how many years later, but fast forward to when the 12 started and recruiting started. And it was very, it was similar then to what it was at Auburn when we first started in 06, it was pretty similar. Uh, and that is we had summer teams and, but we started with young teams. So it was years before we actually got to the recruiting aspect. And once we did get to that recruiting aspect, it was, you know, it was full bore. People were on us because we started, we started with pretty average teams. And so we were sending kids to smaller places but once we started ginning and knew how to run this thing and get it off the ground and put put really quality teams on the field, it was similar to what it was at Auburn. The summers were heavy, falls were a little less. We didn't see we don't see our kids in the spring, uh, so there wasn't any interaction hardly there at all. And then summers were just pounding. And then what started to happen because we we were having our teams eventually grew to where the teams were so good. Uh, I mean, we have multiple kids on the area code. We have multiple perfect game All-Americans. Uh, our, you know, we, we, we recently had a class of 93 kids in the 21 class, I think, signed. 93 is just incredibly stupid. When, and if you do the math, Jace, 93 kids on, you know, that means we got kids on our fifth and sixth team that are playing college baseball we have kids on our fourth team that are playing or what's seen as our fourth team as playing they're playing division one baseball now um so that's just remarkable what our teams have become but with that said the only way that that works is we have to do a really good job at the 12 of putting together a program that we have the better players and then those players there's a system in place that we have that most people don't where we um, basically act as a recruiting agency for our kids. But the recruiting has changed even from when those 93 kids uh, signed and are playing college baseball, the 22 class, which is, you know, just recent had, had 92. So it's a 23 class. So they had 93 kids in 22. Then those kids are in college right now, obviously, but our 93 class had much less but we have two kids in that class who may be first round draft picks, you know, but it's much less because that's what's happened in college baseball. Recruiting now has drastically changed and it's drastically changed from when we were just hammered and we have all these kids and we're getting them committed early eighth grade, even committing they're doing this because they're remarkable players and to that's drying up. And what happened that, and you see a drastic, like if you look at our output, the 90, that 22 class with 93 kids playing college baseball to now it's 45. That's half of the class because what happened is you had a year, maybe a year more, I think it's a year of the transfer portal. And so A&M is a prime example. A&M had a college world series team, that college world series team, you look up and down their lineup, they have a large number of kids in their lineup that played somewhere else the year before um, a percentage of their. So what we were doing before is we were sending 20, we were sending like A&M at one point, I think they had 13, 12 players, 14, 12 players on their team. Right. Um, and at one point it's interesting because Schloss is here now when Schloss is with at TCU, his best two or three teams, in my opinion, we had eight or nine, 12 kids playing at TCU. So, 
you can look at that as being, okay, we have really good players. They're going to really good places to play, and there's large numbers of them. Well, that's not happening now. It's not happening at all. And I'll tell you the way it's not happening. My my 25 class, which you will – I coach in that class. My son's in that class. You will speak to some of them who I think – I can't tell you enough how good of players those kids are. And you're going to speak to them. You're going to speak to Jack Jack and some of those kids that I think are phenomenal talents, like big leaguers, some of them. Uh, so what happened to that class, because this is how the recruiting has gone and changed remarkably. The summer, my, the eighth grade summer for those kids, by August, I had six of them had committed as eighth graders. They had never stepped foot on a high school campus and six of them committed. OK, now this is again, this is the year before the portal. OK, so six of my kids on that 25 top team committed two to TCU, two to Texas, two to Texas A&M. So we're not committing to a small school. They're committing to thoroughbred, blue blood, whatever you want to call them programs, top programs. And that was August of, you know, their eighth grade summer. They're getting ready to go to high school. Yeah. Well, that was the summer of their eighth grade year, the end of that. They started ninth grade high school in, the, in, in August and six of them had committed, which if you look at what had been happening in recruiting with our with our teams like that, is that meant that the next year, the next summer, my sophomore summer, those kids' freshman summer, so the summer after their freshman high school year, so last summer, right? Normally that type of team with those types of players, the entire team would have been committed by the end of the summer, right? So what happened was we went through all of that year um, with six committed. And then this past summer, we've had only two additional kids commit. And the reason for that is because what's going on in college baseball now is, is just, it's the wild West, man. It's just crazy. And, and a tough situation, especially for kids like us, we didn't now my team, the team we went and where we played and because of the kids we're playing against, you know, we were, we're playing the best people in the country through the summer. Uh, we saw the best players in the country. And so we got a lot of attention, but it was only attention from your top, your, you know, we'd see Arkansas, we'd see Tennessee, we'd see all the, the big time programs, even, and we saw also some of the programs from California and Oregon, et cetera. But you didn't – first of all, the volume was much less, much less. And we didn't see them as often, and we didn't see as many. So that team in a normal – the way the system was before the transfer portal, that team would have probably almost all committed somewhere and good schools, and they would have – people would have been around them constantly last summer. So both of those things were dramatically different, ended up with about two more kids committed, Texas Tech, et cetera, um, after, you know, that are committed now. So I think on that team I have eight kids now committed, and there's probably 16, 17 kids on that team typically. And, you know, there's some kids that, you know, because the truth is if, if you're going to run a transfer portal situation, you don't want to sign a bunch of kids at this point and you can wait now 
because you don't have to beat that other program out of for that kid because you know who knows you're not gonna you're gonna have a smaller class maybe and even a smaller class you're gonna bring in kids if you can get a really good player and he's a proven player and he's gonna help you right away why are you gonna take an 18 year old right so so do you kind of see this staying this same way, obviously, as a transfer portal continues on and, you know, you keep having, you know, I know last year at the IU team, uh, we had, uh, I guess, two years ago, my freshman year, we had a second baseman shortstop, both graduate, and we had, you know, some good, some decent high school prospects committed. And I, in my mind, I'm thinking, all right, well, we're going to have a freshman at, you know, first base, third base, well, into the entire infield, a left fielder is going to be a, you know, maybe a freshman or another guy who was behind someone last year. And then we come in and then we come in last spring and second baseman, shortstop, fifth year seniors. And yeah. I mean, so, I mean, I've seen that a little bit. I mean, you have tons more of experience when it comes to that. But what do you think like changes here these next couple of years? Because like, where do all these kids go? Because if there was nine, like, let's say that like the, the ratio of 95 kids in your guys' organization or 93 kids in your guys' organization going to college baseball. And now there was 45 in the class uh, after that. Like, where are these kids going? Are they going to smaller schools? Like, how do you kind of see the solution from your side of things being the recruiting agency in a way for your guys? Yeah. Well, we had to – we because one of the things that we, we do really well in that notion of recruiting is – the first side of that is, Jace, that we're very honest about our players. Um, when a coach asks us a question, we don't oversell them uh, because it's it's just not wise. First of all, it's, you need to be honest anyway, and those guys are going to notice that eventually if if we've oversold some guy and and he ends up not being whatever. Um, and so we, you know, do that. Now I will say what we do also very well is we love on our kids in a manner that we are. This is this at the end of the day, that's what we're about as our players. And if you're my player, Jace, I'm getting you to the best possible place you can get because I want that for you. That makes me feel like what we're doing is, you know, righteous because you have a, any kid that pays uh, money to any organization should get a benefit uh, that their coaches are for them. They're, they're trying to help them. And so we're wanting, you know, it does, it, I can't tell you how proud I am when our kids sign national signing day is one of the coolest things ever. And when they sign, it makes it, it just, it's what we're about. That's what we're trying to accomplish. And, and in fact, we spend most of our, <laughs> we spend most of our youth program on trying to educate the parents on, you know, this is, this is a marathon. It's not a sprint, you know, y'all can win trophies and do all that stuff. And we do win at the youth level, but, but all of our stuff is trying to get to national signing day when they're a senior and getting them to commit. And so we're still doing what we do there, but it is different now because the pitch and the urgency for colleges to sign our kids is way different. They don't have to do that anymore. Right. And so, you know, that's why I think you've seen that because our 23 class is very, very good. And you went from a number that was so large. And I don't know the exact – that just tells you something there. I don't know exact numbers. But I know it's about 93 in, that, in the 22 class, and now we're in the 40s. But, but we're still adding kids. Um, and you ask where those kids go. We, it's remarkable where they go. We have them all over the country. Uh, they play at the service academies, the Ivies. They play 
at SEC, ACC, Pac-12. You know, they play all over the place. And I would say the, you know, they, they just play all over the place. You know, large, large numbers. So it's not – we don't have one kid going to play at UCLA. We have 14 playing at Texas A&M. I mean, you see what I'm saying? There's yeah. the numbers are deep and large, and and the quality is really good. So it's not a quantity thing only; it's a quality thing too. Our kids are really good players. They come from really good families who get it. And if a kid comes to us at eight years old, we're gonna make sure that he has uh, reaches his optimal level at the right time. Yeah. So playing a big role in all these kids' recruiting processes, you know, when it, when it's coming to college, you guys also have a lot of guys, you know, who are getting drafted out of high school, this and that. What type of role do you guys play in and potentially connecting uh, players, you know, with area scouts or, you know, with pro teams? What type of role does that play and how does that compare to, you know, the college recruiting aspect, uh, landscape? Well, it's the same thing. The difference is um, when you're dealing – it's the same thing. And those people the, – the professional scouts – aren't there when they're playing 15U baseball, right? But but they come later, and it's the same thing. We interact with them. Their questions are maybe a little different, but it's basically the same thing, except there's an enormous difference between recruiting and a draft. You know, recruiting is, hey, can I convince this kid to play for us, you know? And a draft is, I want to know everything I can know about this guy besides what he is as a player because I can look at that and evaluate that and, various ways uh but the recruiting is basically selling somebody to take your pitch um the, the other side is i love this kid enough i'm willing to spend the draft pick on him and that kid doesn't have that choice right there's a difference there um and so yeah those but but basically you get to a point where those are are very similar and i will say that there's a little bit more professional scouting on the on the high school side of the high the high school the kid plays at uh, season because those guys before spring training or a little bit after spring training and, you know, before they have to go assume their role during the year, the professional scouts, they can go watch high school more. So a professional scout has a little bit more of an advantage over that than a college guy because they're playing and so forth. But that's a little different. So we may hear from time to time on some of those guys that they've just seen a, one of our players play at a high school but that that professional scout may also get his data and interaction from a high school coach as well. So are there a lot of, so let, let's move ahead to this summer, summer of 2023. Um, yeah. They're going to be, would there be a lot of professional scouts, area scouts, they're looking for that class of the 2024 MLB draft or when exactly do you think the scouts, you know, start put, putting their narrative, putting their mind onto, you know, the, the upcoming year's draft? Well, I think they know like, you know, the, the so if you look at the scouting director for, let's say, the Astros or um, the Rangers, which are two Texas-based teams, obviously, those those area scouts already are those – they're directors of scouting, I would suggest, even. They know our players already. Um, they have a sense of who's who, what they're about. And it's at this point, because my kids are 20, 25, so you're looking at sophomores in high school, uh, they're just going to know who the kids are. They're going to know a little bit about them. And then as it goes on, like this summer, we may see a few of those here and there, but it's going to be scarce 
next summer is when you're probably going to start seeing more and more of them that need to know more depth on, you know, one of my players at that point. Um, and then certainly um, the summer before their senior year, which I guess that's the summer of 24, which is what you ask. I guess the summer of 24 and then their high school season. And now, of course, the draft's different, so they may see them some through that. Although once they've graduated high school, we we kind we have teams, but you know some of them go they leave in June to go to college early, and so but they'll still. So I think that summer of twenty four, my group would the ones that they feel like are draft guys, because you know there's there's really good players that the pro guys consider college guys, you know, um, and so those guys that they may consider pro guys on that team, you they'll start getting a a look pretty heavy that summer, I guess, before their senior year. And then certainly their senior year of high school, they'll be getting looked at um, heavily. Yeah. So you said and while lot, they're in high school. Yeah. While they're in high school, not with us. Yeah. So you said a lot of the pro guys, like in terms of scouts, you know, even scouting directors probably already know who the pro guys are for, you know, your class. You talk about how they, they, they might already know. How have you seen that change, you know, over these past 17 years as well? Um, Have you seen – has it always been that way to where, you know, maybe a sophomore in high school is kind of already being looked <laughs> at as a draft guy? Where have you seen that change and, like, what was the reasoning for this change? Uh, I don't – I think it's more involved. But, again, I think that's an organizational policy and things like that. I don't think – I don't think looking at a sophomore in high school right now makes any sense, you know, as a pro guy, um, although they are and they do, and that's changed a little bit. But I think what you look at, if you're, if you're looking really from the pro perspective, if you look at Jupiter, you know, when they, when they do the perfect game event that's in Jupiter and West Palm and all that area now, um, that's when they really, cause that's, you know, there, there's a break there where, uh, Major League Baseball has a break, and that's why you have, you know, I don't know how many scouts are at that event, but it's the craziest thing I've ever seen. And, you know, there's all those golf carts, and they're all there watching those players. But but most of the time, that event is a junior-senior event. You know, so they're going to – you know, you may get on the radar with a pro team your junior year in high school, but your senior year is – if you're a draft prospect, they certainly know who you are by that point. And again, there's kids all over the place that they may miss on up to that point. Uh, but there's going to, you know, that's how those people make their living, Jace. They can take a kid and go, yeah, he's a pro guy and here's why and the metrics and the stuff that's there. But that's not a, like my class this summer, uh, there's already been, uh, we've already had, I don't know how to say this. My class this summer has already been seen as far as draft class kids. And I'm, I, I don't want to say why or how, but that's already happened. And so they will be looked at in the summer uh, a little more intensely, but it's still not going to be. I mean, if I'm a pro scout, I don't, I don't, I don't, I need to know who the kids are that I, that may be draftable kids, but there's no reason to look at them at this point, not in any kind of seriousness. Yeah. Now, I may be mistaken on that, and I, you probably need to ask a scout on that. But for me, those a sophomore in high school has two more years to grow. He has two more years to get stronger and faster. And so you can look at certain – there are certain metrics, obviously. If a kid has the body that you want, you know, that's a check. But there's a whole lot more to it, and I would have to see a kid. I, I wouldn't even worry about a kid until he's a junior or senior um, so if I'm trying to draft. 
Yeah. So do you think Prep Baseball Report and Perfect Game have maybe played a role in that as well? You know, maybe you showing having showcases and you know show highlighting some of these players when they are younger. Does that kind of work hand in hand when it comes to maybe some of these area scouts being like, okay, maybe this is a guy I need to go check out? Um, do you think those kind of work hand in hand, or are they kind of completely separate? Yeah, yeah, I think both of those organizations are fabulous for for many many reasons, and I think one of them is that you know I think. Uh, perfect game has set the standard on marketing our players and marketing kids and helping them both with colleges, but also with pro scouts. I think the, you know, you look at their model of, you know, I can, as a kid, put my headshot up there and put up my interest in colleges and so on and so forth. I think perfect game has been magnificent for that. And they're, you know, we really, I, I admire from a, both a sport marketers standpoint, but also a coach, how they've built their business um, and I would say the same, the PBR thing is, is just as good. They are, we, we, we actually have a very, very, as a 12, we have a very good relationship with them. We think very highly of them and, and I, and I value their events. Um, I can't say how highly it's just, I can't say it enough, how highly we value their organization and, and certainly their events. What I would say on that, and, and this is, I, I wouldn't have a problem telling the Fords or anybody else with perfect game that. You know, the the problem with doing that system is now you you set up a marketing system that um, can list certain things, metrics included, where you can see if a young man at, at, at let's just take the 25 class, you know, you can follow it to where he was 60 at this age, he's 70 at this age, and now he's 15 and he's throwing 86 miles an hour. Well, you can see that on their on their guns now. Again, you got to take that for what it's worth. It looks, I would assume those are accurate, but the issue becomes now, you know, you may, it, it doesn't, what that doesn't show are intangibles and other things. It shows a gun reading, which is, I think, dangerous in some ways. I also think it's dangerous if you have that up there and you're overselling the ability of that type of marketing to get your kid a scholarship or getting a, a place to play because there are literally hundreds of thousands of kids playing youth baseball and all of them can have a profile, which is a moneymaker and great marketing. And I think it's fabulous, but it also from what we're doing, if you're asking from a recruiting perspective, it's very helpful, but at the same time, it doesn't tell the whole story. And, and we have kids, frankly, we haven't always done the super fantastic events because we know we don't have to have those. And that hasn't always been popular. Um, but we do that because, you know, we know our kids, if they're good enough to play there, they're going to, we're going to put, we're going to place them. Yeah. They don't have to go do, you know, some showcase event or whatever um, because we know they're good enough to play there and our, and the, and the coaches we interact with trust us. So I think it's really, really good, you know, and I, and I, and again, the perfect game people are great and I don't think there's anything wrong with what they're doing. I just think it could create the marketing side of it could create some issues with kids that, you know, follow that. I have to throw this or I have to throw that, or I have to be at this particular event to be seen. Uh, I think that's a great sales pitch and it earns money, but I'm not so sure that's factual. I don't, we have kids. I mean, if you take our, if you, you, you'll probably end up talking to Kevin. If you, if you take Kevin, his, his son 
hardly did any of those. And he signed with A&M and he was, you know, looked at as a draft prospect. So he didn't have to do any of that stuff. The kids that are there don't have to do that. That have that skill set and ability. They just don't have to. So, but again, both organizations are definitely responsible for incredible things. Yeah. So digging into the Texas 12, we haven't done this. We're an hour in. Have, so we've been talking about baseball <laughs> just in general. So let's dig into the Texas 12, you know, early 2017, 18 years ago. Um, you know, you said you, you're you're watching a baseball game with your oldest son. Your wife's kind of, you know, tapping you on your shoulder like you might need to go ahead and co- coach your son. Yeah. Take us through that process of maybe the idea that came about of, you know, maybe go and start the Texas 12. Just take us through that whole process. Uh, maybe some things that were difficult, some things, ideas that came to mind that didn't come about. Just take us through that whole story. So I was a prof- I moved to I, I moved to a college station to be a professor at Texas A&M. My son was eight. He played a year of Little League. The coach he had was fabulous. He was a great man. He's still a good friend of ours. He, in fact, we partnered with him to make our uniforms initially. But it, I, And he played with him. But my things would go on during the games, and I wanted to blurt out. My wife would, you know, I, did, I didn't. I, I held it for a full spring season of Little League uh, machine pitch, if you will. Um but the next year, I, I bit the bullet, lost my bet to Dr. Sutton, who you should definitely try to get on. Uh, look him up. You'll enjoy a podcast with him. And uh, I lost my bet. He can, he can tell you about that. But And then I had one team. We played one summer, uh, one event one summer, and we won it. But basically what I did that next spring is I put together, and it would be his first year of kid pitch baseball, I said, do you want to play? This is how bright I was, Jace, at the time. I said, do you want to play college baseball? And so what's an eight-year-old going to say? And my son said, yes, I do, Daddy. And I went, okay, I'm going to build you a team and coach it. And so I spent that spring um, looking at Little League kids at College Station Little League, and I would walk up to their parents after playing them and the kids I liked. And, what you know, for whatever reason, I would talk to their parents. And literally, this is 2005, Literally, the parents are 2006, and the parents would – a lot of them looked at me and thought, who's this weirdo talking to me about my kid? Because there was nothing like this in College Station at the time. You had daddy teams and mom-and-pop teams in College Station, and most of them functioned around Little League. They didn't – the travel ball was what it was. Um, there was not very much travel ball here. If it was, it was done on what I would suggest was a double A level. So the teams were just very average. And so I put that team together. Um, that original team, Jace, um, they all went to College Station High School eventually. Um, College Station High School at one point was number two in the country in perfect game. Um, I think every single kid on that team played college baseball, all 11, the first team that they, and by the way, that was a very new high school here in college station. The team, the, that team was, they started as sophomores and my son was the only one. He was a freshman cause he was playing up. And so that team was, they want, they're the, they're the only team in Texas high school history that won a state championship um, with no senior class at the school and they were phenomenal. We had a, a catcher. We had Oklahoma state, uh, text A&M on the mound, uh, Florida on the mound. 
um, TCU in the outfield was going to be a first round pick. We that that's from that little league team that I went around to the parents. So that's a great example of a case study. So we had them from the time they were ten all the way through high school. And again, they we had an arm go to Florida, we had an arm go to A and M, we had an I mean you can go on and on. That team was the best high school team I think I've ever seen, and and that was our team that we plucked from the College Station Little League team. And they just developed over the years. So that was our first team. Our, uh, what happened after that was really critical to where we're at today because uh, I was teaching at A&M. And by the way, I chose the name. I've talked a little bit about that. I, did, I didn't want the name to be the typical travel ball, boring, stupid name, in my opinion, the Tigers or, or the, Ag, the little Aggies and all that. And and because the number is really important to the brand, I wanted it to mean something. And we love the, the values of the 12th man in sports are incredible. And so we wanted the, the organization to fit those values. And anybody that's associated with A&M knows that those values are really important. But I also wanted it to have a spiritual element. And so if you look at the Bible, as I've said, the number is significant there. And so we start, I started doing the 12 just as one team college station we played one tournament in katy texas that summer won the tournament double little double a tournament our first pitch the first pitch that walker davis ever saw he hit a ball out at he was nine at the time and so we were all thinking this perhaps easy i had 14 players on that team which was super dumb um but anyway so we played that and then the next year people found out what i was doing and they would watch us practice and by the way, our practices were incredible. Uh, I had two guys helping me. One had pitched in the Brewers organization, and another guy is now second in charge, actually, at Texas A&M's athletic department. Those were my two assistant coaches, basically. And it was it was really dumb how good we were coaching the crap out of these little 10-year-olds. And people would watch that in the local Little League, and they would come up to me. It was super weird and ask me if – if I would coach their team. And I was like, I'm a professor. I got to do all this stuff. I don't have time. And so one of my professor's son-in-laws was still playing pro ball. And I went to him and told him about this and said, you know what? I think you can build a livelihood out of this deal if you'll just do it. And he's like, I don't have any interest in doing that. And I said, okay, well then I kept doing it for the next year. He gets towards the end of his rope in pro ball because they're telling him he's not a, he's not good enough to keep playing. And so he comes back to me and goes, all right, tell me what this looks like. And his name's Kevin Hodge. And, again, I, I work with his father-in-law at A&M. And we set up a thing, and he started getting his master's with me. And while he's getting his master's, we put together a blueprint of, of this organization and what it should look like. And we start adding teams. And that original team, we added a team for Kevin to coach above it at 11U. And we just started adding teams. And we had no desire whatsoever to have a high school team. There was a local group in town that had high school kids. And we thought we would just give them to those guys. And we started going along and noticed that, you know, it'd be kind of cool if we could help our kids get scholarships. And so we decided to had high school teams and my and then what I did then is I went to a guy named Darren Ebright who had a he had one single field in the middle of nowhere in Katy Texas at the time 
And I went to him and I said, we want to put our teams here. And by that time we had gotten good. And by the way, when we first started going to Houston to play with our little college station kids, we would just get drubbed, but they were learning and we figured out what to do and how to play. And we started getting better and better and better to where we would now go and beat those teams that were majors. We had double A players, uh, what we thought, but we eventually developed those kids developed and became incredible. Ryan Johnson, Walker Davis, I could go on and on. Those are great players. But anyway, so we added teams, and then I went to Darren. Darren said, I'm not interested in what you're doing. And so I didn't stop. I went back to him again. And uh, you there? Yeah. I didn't stop. And he eventually said, okay, I'll put teams here, but you got to manage it. We put two two high school teams there the first year, and then we just started adding teams. Eventually, we got to the point where um, – we had a full set of high school and a full set of youth teams at Katie. And by full set, I mean two. We had two two teams in each age group from about eight or nine. We didn't, you know, truthfully, we shouldn't do this stuff until they're about 10. But, you know, you lose kids if you don't go down earlier. So we had kids from eight to – I don't remember, but we basically progressively added teams in Katie, Texas – and we wanted to do it and be different. Our, our motto is something different, and we were different. We were not throwing breaking balls at until they were 13 years old. We tried to teach them to rely on a fastball and a changeup, and, and people knew that, but we still beat people. Uh, we still beat them even though we were fastball changeup in the youth programs. Uh, and then we went to the Woodlands and added a facility there at a place that I practiced with growing up – or with my my first team growing up and which that facility is phenomenal both that facility and the cotton facility in Katy, texas that we operate out of are phenomenal i mean phenomenal and so kids are flocking to the differences of the co- and we wanted our pillars to be we wanted coaches to be role models we wanted to take the health of our athletes at a huge priority pitch counts different times of year pitch counts no breaking balls etc and we started off branding ourselves and doing it that way. And so it, it has grown into this thing that is the stupidest thing ever because we have, we have, I don't know how many teams now in Corpus, Victoria, San Antonio, uh, the Woodlands, obviously, Katy, obviously, and obviously College Station. Uh, it's around 1,400 families that trust us with their, with their sons and now we've added more to where we're doing softball and the softball is going to do the same thing. But the, the model is very simple. We have incredible coaches and those coaches attract the parents because those parents want their kids around that kind of coach. And we place and we everything we do, even if it's eight years old, is to direct that kid to sign in day. And that's what matters is if a parent trusts us enough to pay us, we're going to do everything we can to reach that kid's potential, develop him the right way or her now the right way to where they they become the best player that they can possibly be. And if that means they can't play in college, then they're going to be a great high school player, whatever that means. So that's what we're doing. And it has grown. God has blessed it. And the, and all of that's grown because of Kevin Hodge, 
and his day-to-day operations and the kind of man he is. And I'll tell you how good it's become. What And another key thing was when Zach Dillon, we hired him at Katie to run Katie. And then eventually Zach became our director of our high school and he helped in recruiting. And of course, Zach Dillon now is the recruiting director at Baylor. But that all happened, you know, through that process. You know, Zach, you know, was blessed to be a part of us, but we were also blessed from him. But the 12, I can promise you, is we follow very um, specific mission and philosophy that Kevin makes happen every single day. And he's a phenomenal human. And all of that happened back in the day when I was trying to convince him to do it. And I had one team and I was trying to convince him to do this, you know, with us. And then he started doing it. And it started out with just a couple of teams a year, you know, until where you're in 2022, 2023 now. And you have all of that stuff that I've described. What was the what were those decision factors when it came to, you know, moving from, you know, just college station to where now you're you went to the woodlands, went to Katy. Um, I'm not super familiar with all those Texas towns. I remember looking at your guys' website earlier, but all those just different uh, Texas mm-hmm. towns, what was the d- decision factors and what was that process of, you know, you know, expanding to different cities? So the Katy one is really critical to this whole thing, uh, Jace. If we did if we wouldn't have done that, we would not be on this conversation now because Kevin and I, frankly, were content with just making the kids in College Station good. And and if we could have placed those kids, that would have been fine. But the way it works in the state of Texas is Houston is a, an incredible hotbed. Um, there are, you know, the players are ridiculous. They're really talented, really good, good families. And the kids can absolutely just play, right? And we have the weather to do it year-round. And so they develop at a better rate. And so I would suggest to you, you've got Southern California, parts of Northern California, Florida, East Cobb, uh, uh, Atlanta area, and Houston are the hotbeds of travel baseball. I would say those kids are phenomenal, and that's who we're competing with, right? So I I knew that for our – for the and this is going to sound really weird to you, but our kids in College Station, for them, I found out pretty quick that how this thing worked – was if if one of our kids was good enough, like my son, if he was going to be good enough to play in college, then most of those kids at the time would go down to Houston to play once they reached high school. And we were fine with sending them there, right? But I found out if we really wanted to optimize what we were doing, which we feel like is different than um, than many travel organizations, we had to have high school players. And the only way that I figured that that was going to happen was as if we had a presence there. So Katie was in is, is West Houston. And at the time they probably had four, maybe five high schools when I went to Darren and Kevin was like, I don't want to do this. He was going, you know, it's too much work and I don't want to do any of this stuff. And, and what's really interesting here is we've never been about the money. Um, and there's ways that that can be factually proven. And since we're not about the money, and I don't see the point of adding more teams. And I said, well, the point is, is if we have a presence in Houston, we can get the Houston players now to couple with our college station kids. And so when I went to Darren, it was just to have a field. He had one field at the time and it was right behind his business, which is very funny now to think about all this. 
And that was the whole impetus to doing the Katie deal. And that again, took two years, Darren, you know, bought in, he's still buying in. He's a great partner still. And the facility there now is phenomenal. And that's where all of our operations are for our high school program. And it's great, but we had to have that or we weren't going to help our college station kids long-term. We could, we could pass them off in high school, but we weren't going to help them long-term. And so that was the goal there. And then after we got Katie going and it took us a while in Katie to get going well, we started getting our, that's when our recruiting took off because we had really good players by then. And then I went to him on the woodlands. He's like, you're crazy. I'm not doing it. <laughs> but we eventually got the guy that's perfect in, um, in the woodlands. He's phenomenal. Used to be the recruiting coordinator at Baylor played in the Astros organization. And he works for us in the woodlands. He's a tremendous leader and man, you definitely got to speak to him. His name's Trevor Moat. So we have great leadership. We, what we also don't do is we don't, we don't go into a city or a location unless we have the leadership that we want. And it took us a while in the woodlands because we couldn't come up with the right person. But when Trevor came, it was a no brainer. So take, take us through that timeline a little bit from, you know, that first season you say you play one, you have one team, one tournament down there in Katy, Texas, that timeline of, you know, eventually evolving to, you know, those multiple teams within just different multiple tournaments, you know, now you guys are headed to, you know, the, all the big time tournaments here down South around the, across the country. Take us through that timeline of going from one tournament, you know, to multiple now across the, every summer. Yeah, so Jace, we when we first started, we the point was all based upon kids and Brian and College Station, Texas, and surrounding that in the youth market. And 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 again, I started it for my son, the you know, for him to have a team that I felt like would help him to, you know, play college baseball. And so we built it for him initially. Matthew Bennett's his name, but he's the he's the original, he's what we call the 12 Adam. And uh, so he, he, we started with him, and the purpose was just to put a team around him of really good players locally and play for the community and do that type of stuff. And we did that, obviously, in that team. We had, we had no idea they would end up being that ridiculous, obviously, but they were. And uh, <clears throat> that went from, okay, people will keep asking me to do these teams locally. And it was only, you know, five or six people would just keep coming up. Why don't you do this? We'll pay you. And I was like, you'll pay me, you know, that was interesting, but I was like, I, I don't have time because, you know, I moved here to become a professor here and build my academic career. And, and if you go and look, I've spent a lot of time on that and I'm, I'm, you know, proud of where God has led that, but it's been a, you know, I've been pretty successful at that too, on a, on a level that no way could I do if I was doing the baseball operations every day, all day. So the only way it would have worked is to add Kevin. We added Kevin through, through clenched teeth and various other things. And once he hit, it was, you know, we're going to add a team a year for every age group. And then we figured out you couldn't do a team a year because we had, you have to have two teams in each age group for it to be viable and make sense. And then, you know, he was doing that initially as a grad student. And so he didn't need to be paid a full salary or to do anything like that. But we started seeing that, okay, we have to – some of the hurdles are or you have to have a good coach because that was our conviction that he had to be good baseball-wise but also character-wise, and, and that's very important. And so for the model to work that way and, – and really our model has always been – it's been a very dumb from a business model, to be honest with you, Jace, because 
we basically are not taking the money to make money. We're taking the money to invest in the kid. And by that, I mean, most of our teams, obviously on the youth level have 10, 11, maybe 12 kids. And we pay our, we, the model was always you take that money in, it pays the coach. And we wanted to pay the coach as well. Right. And we had systems in place for that. And so what we did was, is that's the model. There's not a whole lot left over then to pay somebody's salary to run it or anything like that. And we didn't start out that way. And we've never been that way to where, man, let's make a million dollars off of this stuff or whatever. And so we've never done that. And I think people know that, recognize that. And that's another reason that they trust us with their, with their children. Um, so we went along, we, in college station and Brian, we were off, we were, adding team a year, you know, two teams a year per age group. And that took, so imagine the first year the kids were nine, that first team, my son was eight, they were nine. Then we went to uh, the 10 year old year, you know, now we're going to add that first 10 year old tier. It took two years for Kevin to come around. When he came around, he, we started adding team, a team and we'd have to find a coach to add another team. Now we're landlocked, if you will, and College Station, there's only people that are going to come here. There's only certain people. So it just so happened that people would start coming along that had played at A&M, and they wanted to get their master's in sport management. And so I would – I'll never forget three or four, five, six, ten of those guys would come back that had played pro ball. So we would get the kids from the grad program, and then they that, – that was going really well so we could add coaches – and because we, we didn't want to just have a team because people had money that because I, we didn't feel like it, it would represent the quality we wanted unless there was a coach that had a background. Right. So we only put a team together if we had a coach. So some age groups had two teams, some had one. We were just blessed with those guys that had played pro ball were wanting to come back and get their their degrees. Colin Baluli being one, Justin Moore being one, Matt Farnham. I could go on and on and on. And what those guys started doing is they were – because I was an unusual – you know, there aren't many professors that have that background, right? And I was a little bit unusual, so they they would they would start getting their buddies to come get their masters with me and that type of deal. <clears throat> and so we were blessed that way. We didn't think that way, but we got those guys, and we didn't put a team together unless we had a good coach. And and then from there, the Katie thing happened, and I've described that already. Darren Ebright was monumentally important during that process. And we put those teams together there and that took a while because the brand of baseball and the parent was very different in Katie and Houston than college station. The college station mentality was little league. Uh, the travel ball was already very popular running wild, crazy. And, you know, there were lots of very well established programs in Houston, the, the Houston heat, uh, the banditos, you know, there were lots of good programs that were already ginning. So we were trying to build teams and players. Those good teams were already on other – our good kids were already – so we had to we had to establish ourselves. We did uh, by doing just what we did in College Station um, and doing it very well. And then once those teams, we sort of got a harness and sort of got things going well around the teams in Katy, it just started blossoming. And then the Woodlands, it took us a while because, again, we didn't have the leader we wanted in place. We had teams. We had people willing to pay us, move their teams, practice where we had the field. 
but we didn't do it until we had Trevor Moat. And same thing in Corpus, same thing in San Antonio, same thing in Victoria, wherever. And yeah. so we have all of those things in place. But what's interesting is we don't have Zach anymore because he's the recruiter at Baylor now and the coach at Baylor. And so we're in the process now, it's interesting, and Katie of figuring out that system in a more efficient, better way. Um, but what's interesting now about that facility in Katie is – Directly next to it is the KDISD, which is the Interscholastic School District, has a barn there. It's a huge 4-H complex right next to it. There's a new high school going in, which I think is now going to be their 11th high school in the area. And that is a less, it's about a mile, mile and a half from our facility. And there's nothing but houses out there now everywhere in the neighborhood. So we started there, I think there was four high schools there. And now there's about 11 or 12. And so you can see the growth around that facility and where we're at has really helped to explode our program. And we now have the best, you know, we get the best players over and above. We don't have all of them, but we get the best of them. And, and it, and it makes sense because we have the best product to give them, you know? Um, So, so what does that team structure look like when it comes to, do you have, you know, players from KD playing with team uh, players from Corpus Christi or how does that work when it comes to the team structure um, every game? Great, great question. And I'm really glad you asked it. So we're very different, as I said, in lots of ways, but one of the ways is when our kids are eight through um, 14, we play for community. We play in a local like we put them in local areas, right? So our Corpus kids, all of our Corpus kids that are the best players we have play on our Corpus team, all right? And Corpus is three hours from Houston, four hours from College Station. So it would be dumb to have a Corpus kid playing on a College Station team. And so we have six or seven community teams, right, or community locations that they play what we call our youth and middle school programs, those kids will play by their community. Okay. And so when they get to be 15, we put them all in the salad bowl because what happens when you get to high school is there's recruiting and things like that. And it's only the summer and the fall. And the, and a lot of kids don't play in the fall, but it's the summer. So what we do at that point is if a kid, let's say that, that there's two kids on the corpus team that are the best shortstop and, and catcher, they're going to be on team one on, on the way down. But we, again, if you remember what I said about the beginning of this, it was about making those college station kids the best we could and putting them in college eventually. But we were willing to hand them off when they got to high school. Well, it just so happens we have one of the top high school programs in the country. You know, I would argue it's, it's I'd put us up against anybody in the top five or certainly 10 in the country. But we don't we don't have those kids from the time they're eight on the same team. And we learned a long time ago, it's not only the right thing to do morally, but it's also the right baseball thing to do, because a 12 year old kid that's bigger than everybody may not be the best player at 15. And if you separate your teams out by those ages, you're going to alienate loose kids that you shouldn't lose because you've just put together the best team. Now, I have to be honest here and say that's our model. That's what we do overwhelmingly most of the time. 
but I'm a hypocrite at the same time because my two teams, I've had two teams that I, two age groups that I have gone through the whole way with the original team. Right. And then I left them after two years because my son was younger. So his team, and I went all the way through with them from the time that my son was 10 or 11. I can't remember all the way through signing day for those kids. That team that I put together for my son, the second team had kids from all over. At one point we had a catcher from Oklahoma. He's still, who's he, he's still playing at McNeese, by the way. Uh, he would play with us from Oklahoma. I had a pitcher, a left-handed pitcher from Port Natchez, which is four hours away, three hours away. And, but, but what's interesting is we practice more than any of our other teams. I would have them come in on Friday night to college station, sleep all over my house. And we'd practice for two hours Friday night, then all day on Saturday, have lunch in between. So we practice them. We, because I don't want to, I won't want what I'm getting ready to say for, to be misunderstood, but my team was never, never followed that model. Okay. That's that second team I had. The third team, and by the way, the first original team did. We kept them a local team. The, my second team, which is the class of 2025, I went back to the old model and I put together what I thought was the best players I could get my hands on at 9 and 10 and 11. And they have won. They like my first team. They've won everything. Okay, they've won whatever there is out there. They've won it. They've won, you know, perfect game, WWBA. They've won everything, right? So – that group, my shortstops from Corpus, my, you know, they're from all over. But even with them, I don't have an Oklahoma. Most of our teams and our best teams are within a 50 to 75 mile radius of our facility in Katy. Almost every single team we have, including the 2025s. The 2025s, if you look at our roster, the Corpus kids, probably the farthest kid away. Everybody else on my roster is a Houston-based, a Houston-area team. And I can tell you our 20 – we had one other team that did that, and it was a Katy team that Darren's son played for, actually. That team was all local kids. And they got beat in the WWBA in the championship by a Canes team that was a really good Canes team, right? Our kids on that, on that one team, which had Joseph Menifee, bunch of other really good players. That team was less than a 50-mile radius of the Cotton facility in Katy, and they lost to the Canes barely because we ran out pitching, but the Canes are stupid good as well. Uh, but the Canes team, you can go look at that roster. It was a little different roster uh, geographically than ours, I'll just say that. Yeah. And I madly respect what they do. I'm not saying anything negative. I'm just saying our what we do is we have local areas – so they get to be 15. We put them in the, in the salad bowl and we put a team out. Most all of those teams have been very Houston centric. Okay. I've, so I've got two questions that are going to come from this of two, like the two completely different, but I kind of want to throw them both at you. You can kind of answer them the way that you want. So first off, you talk about geographics. So you talk about Canes national. I mean, you, there's so many other teams out there that, you know, they have kids from New York, California, Nevada, yeah. Texas, Florida, this and that. Um, talk about Texas high school baseball, the competition level there. And then that second question is you, you've stuck with that 2025 class, the class, I don't know the class for your oldest son. I, I don't know if you mentioned it, but uh, yeah. you, you've stuck with that same class. 
does that work for pretty much every team? Like if you have, let's say coach Hodge go and coach, you know, 2023, has he been with them this entire time or how exactly does that work coaching structure wise for the 12? Yeah, we, uh, so the, my, my oldest son, that was the 2016 class. Our first class was the 20, that, that original team, they were 2017, no 2015, excuse me. They were 2015, so you can go and look those kids up. Remarkable players, but they were all College Station kids. And then the 15 class was not all – or 16 class was not all College Station. That's his team. Uh, yes, and I, I started with them and went through all the way with them until they signed. Most of our coaches do just that. But we have a lot of coaches who coach high school program, but then during the regular year, they're coaching a youth team as well. So they'll stay with that team a lot, all as much as they can, all the way through. And for the most part, we do that. There's a different structure on some leadership on how that works. But back to the original thing, we we're a we're different in that I want to line up and play the Canes, or you know, there's there's some other teams that are similar uh, philosophically to the Canes um, that have kids from different places and that type of thing. And I want it to be known quite simply as I, I have great, great respect for the Canes. And, and the reason that I do is because if I'm, if I'm playing a Canes team, those kids are coached. And there's a standard that, 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 Jeff, that, that organization has, frankly, that we have as well. Uh, I, I fully expect any team I put on the field and go out there and coach to play really hard to play the game really well. And, and frankly, when I walk out onto the field, I don't, you know, I don't care that that team has kids from different ge geographical. I don't care. What I care about is I know they're coached well and they're going to make my kids better. It's just that our philosophy has always been different. And that is on the local youth level, they play by their location. When they get to high school, we have a team that's going to be because because here's, here's what I, I do have an advantage or we have an advantage in that, in that philosophy is that Houston has such good quality players that we don't have to go to 14 states or fit, whatever it is, 10 states, two states. We don't really need that. And what's interesting, if you'll look at my 25 team, everybody's from that general area of Houston except for really two kids. One kid is from Utah. When you look at the roster, it'll say he's from Utah. And you'll say, well, Greg, you're lying. You've got a kid from Utah on your team. Well, that kid's played from us since the very from very young age until his dad took a CEO. Are you there? Yeah. Yeah, his, his dad took a CEO position in Park City, Utah. You can't blame the guy. He loves to ski. And so, but that that's he left right before high school. So you don't need to live in Houston to play for us in high school and what's interesting is that family's bought in so much that they basically just send him here for the summer so we don't we don't and and the other thing is one of the main reasons we don't want to have multiple states is because we put a prime value on practice and developing our kids our high school kids practice and they practice a lot and so you if you got a kid in Utah you know, you can't, you can't practice that kid the same way unless you're creative. Like I used to be when I had the kids from, from a larger distance. Um, so we don't, we stick to all that. And, and again, it's, 
you know, that's different. And it's not that it's better or worse than what uh, someone that we admire like the Canes do. You know, you know, I, again, I, more power to them if they want to do that. And, and I like to be really candid with you. I like what they do because I because I know what I'm getting when I play them is going to be a really good product. It's just different philosophically than what we do, and it doesn't make it better or worse. Yeah. So with you guys being a travel baseball team that, you know, practices quite a bit, that's not, you know, something that's done very often in the travel baseball world, especially of a team of your caliber that has, you know, multiple power five, multiple division one commits. How do you guys work around the practice schedule of high school? Like how exactly does that work in the timeline of the spring of the summer from, you know, when they go from high school baseball to travel baseball, how do you guys work around high school when it comes to actually practicing and like how often are you guys practicing? Yeah, so we we do exactly what I would assume everybody else does on the schedule part of that. Um, we have them from the time they're done high school baseball. And, of course, Texas is like most states. We have rules here, uh, which I think are um, both the letter and the spirit of it are correct. When, when our kids are in their high school season, we don't see them at all. They do only high school we we love that we think it's fabulous and and you know high school baseball in texas is extremely good and i mean you're talking about it doesn't matter where you go it's really good and so our kids are getting by playing texas high school baseball they're getting better there's a ton of great coaches in the state of texas high school baseball and so they get that as well so really you know that we want that to happen and we actually want uh, to support their high school season and their and their team, so so we're a little different there too because there's I know there's conflict. I've written a paper on that actually. You should go read it, Jace, about the conflict between club and school ball. So we don't want that to happen, and we encourage that. But we don't have them from January this year. I think it's January twenty, January twentieth until their team is done. Once their team starts getting, and we're talking about just the high school schedule now. Once their team gets done whether it's JV, freshman ball, or, or varsity, they start coming back to us and we start practicing. And that's usually around middle of April, end of April. And we'll start practicing whoever we have. We're practicing them two, three days a week, okay? And this is way different than most people, by the way. And so we'll start practicing them. We're not relying on some uh, pitching coach they hire or a, a hitting guy we want to practice them. And so if we got 10 kids, we're going to work them out starting whenever that's, there's enough to do that. And then eventually, and what's, what's both good and bad about the state of Texas is for you to win a state championship in Texas, you better, you better strap it on because it's going to take a long time to get there. And last year, I think we got our, I got my, left-handed pitcher back because his team went to the state semis I think I got him in the middle of June that's when he got done and so most of them however were at the end of middle of May we got most of them and so we start practicing them then and that's why we don't we want we're different again we don't play we don't go anywhere as soon as possible and start playing we practice them we put them on teams and we decide who's on this team and that team after two or three weeks of playing against each other. And we only play each other. There's big events we miss in the first of June because we don't want to do that. We want to get our kids back, try them out, 
let them play against each other as much as possible because they're good players. And then we'll go like last year, our first event was major event was the USA event that we did. And that was, or no UBC with my group was at the third or fourth week of June. All right. And that means I'd had the kids about a month and we didn't play anything except against ourselves do the UBC. And so we'll do all that all summer and we'll practice them at least once, hopefully twice. We had some issues during COVID. So that wasn't regular. It was irregular. And we had some issues last summer with injuries and stuff that made it a little irregular. But what ideally we would do is have two practices a week with those guys in between playing. So the problem is that you have to be creative there because they play sometimes Thursday to Sunday or a week-long event, and then you have to balance and change it the next week. But we want to practice with them because we want our kids to be able to run a pick series. We want them to be able to get all the reps they need that you can't get um, by yourself. And so we practice them then. And then we take a month's break in the fall, August, and we shut down earlier than everybody else because Texas high school football is a big deal. So we'll shut down at the end of July for most of our teams in high school, all of our teams in high school. And then they take a, the month of August pretty much off, rest their arms, and then we do a fall schedule. And the fall schedule mainly is to get them on a college campus around college coaches. And we'll play, but we're good enough now and we're deep enough, Jace, that we don't have to play other teams. We can show up at a college with four teams in the 2025 class and four teams have kids that are recruitable to that university we're at. And so there's no reason for us. We can just have a 12 day, yeah. if you will. And so we do that at that place and we do that in the fall. It's more relaxed. We want, we want our kids to play high school football in Texas or hunt. And so the fall is much more relaxed. We have one practice a week. It's usually a, like a Wednesday and then they'll play on a Saturday and Sunday at that university. And we only do that for four or five weekends because we want them to be family members, hunt, fish, soccer, or in Texas, football is a big deal. And we want our kids to play football. Then they're off. And so once they're off of that, we have a training program available for them that gets them bigger, stronger, faster. And then we ramp back up a throwing program so that when they get to that high school on January 20th this year, they're ready to throw their bullpens. They've, they've done the ramp-up program, which, by the way, we our ramp-up program is a professional program that we do. Um, but we also have, it's important to note, we pitch count our kids all year. Um, we have kids all the time that we tell you don't need to pick up a ball all fall. Um, you can hit, or if you're a pitcher, you're not, you're not going to be involved with the fall program because, again, we want to be different. We, we follow very strict guidelines there. And a lot of our kids will just take the fall off because they are resting. But they don't take the fall off from skills. They will throwing, but they'll lift weights, get stronger, bigger, stronger, faster. Um, so we have programs for all of that. So you guys go through the, that tryout process, you know, in the end of May, uh, beginning of June, you know, before you, you're getting everybody back. If you're so let's say a player in the let's say class of 2026 this year, you know, the for like the high school freshmen, if they make that top team is the majority of the time for those next three years, is that top team pretty much that same roster or does that fluctuate quite a bit when it comes to like summer to summer? 
Um, I think it depends on uh, that's contextually answered, uh, Jason. It depends on the on the on the class, um, and it depends on the depth of talent that is your top level talent. And what I mean by that is you you're not it's it, there's not a team in the country that starts out with eleven kids at eight U that end up being the same eleven kids at sixteen U. That never happens. And I think that's an important note for what your question's asking because most of the crazy stuff that's involved with travel baseball is between eight and 12 years old. It's just nuts. And some of the, and the parents lose their minds over things that are not what the future holds. And so, you know, to answer it in short, it just depends on the context of the team. And what we find is, is that we get an enormous influx of kids when our kids turn 15, that 15 year old year, because kids are playing in other programs, but they want what we have in our high school programs. So they'll come try out for that. In fact, our tryouts Sunday. So if you want to come witness it, you can do that, but we'll have an influx of 15 year olds there that we, that we haven't recruited that show up because they want what the 12 or, you know, any of these programs you're going to discuss or they, they have it as well, you know, and they're going to want that. And so they show up at 15 U and that's a blessing for us. So being the 2025 head coach, you know, for your son, do you, are you able to build relationships with, you know, guys in the 23 class, 24, 26 class? Um, how often are you talking to those guys? How, how do you find time to do that? Especially with your, you know, your rigorous schedule of being a professor, being the head coach of 2025. What are some of your relationships with guys, you know, beyond that 2025 class? So I, I know quite a, the answer is not much. And the answer is because it's impossible. And that's why we have, you know, 80 something coaches and, and we have leaders of each class. Like we have a director of our 25 class, a director of our 26 class, 23 class, et cetera. Um, I, I only know, I know all of the kids extremely well with the 26 class because I helped build that that uh, top teams roster through recruiting and other things like that. I helped build, especially the original core. Um, and some of those kids were actually playing with me when we were younger. And that's what led to that. Um, so I know all of them very well. And I, and of course I know the 24 class because Kevin Hodges son is in the 24 class. And I know that team as well, very well, but I, I know most of the high school kids well, because you know, I'll be, it'll be a summer normal day, Jason. I'll be driving somewhere in, in Texas or, you know, talking to my wife and the phone rings and it's, uh, it's Tennessee and they want to know, Hey, how about this 23 kid? You know, that happens, that, that happens a lot. And I have to go, well, here's what I got. Cause I only know this, but let me find out or let me get you connected to the person responsible for recruiting him. And I'd say that's happening all over the place. I could not be good for Texas A&M if I were, if I knew every kid in every age group and so forth, it, it wouldn't be possible, but I don't know the youth kids very well at all. Uh, some of them I know, some of them I don't. The high school kids, I have to for recruiting purposes, but depending on the class, I don't know them that well. Okay. 
All right. Well, I've got a bunch of more questions I want to ask, <laughs> but I don't want to, you know, take any more of your time. I know it's a, yeah, um, sorry. It's a, the, sorry, the semester just started, you know, I don't want to take too much of your time. So go ahead. I'll end it off here with this one last question. We'll go ahead and end it off for episode number one of this, you know, Texas 12 baseball series on the JKR podcast. But, you know, you've built this program now for 17 years, 17, 18 years, uh, done a phenomenal job in terms of building that the organization. But, you know, as we move into the future, you know, to 2023 and beyond, what are some of you know, the, the vision that you see for Texas 12 going into these next couple of years? That's a great question, too. Thank you. Thank you for asking that. I, I want to make it clear that Kevin Hodge is responsible for where we're at. Um, you know, I've done what I've done, but I want to focus on him. I want to say that Zach Dillon had a monumental impact on on where our brand is and what it looks like. Trevor Moat, Randy Brown, Mark Mahalik. I could go keep Jeremy Knox, who you're going to talk to, and good luck with that because that's going to be a phenomenal podcast. He's he's great. Those people, you know, and I'm leaving out numerous people, um, have made this program and brand what it is because they're the day-to-day and they put in the sweat equity and done all of that and made us – made us what something that I, you know, I don't want to get emotional, but I'm extremely proud of what this organization is and stands for and has stood for and has done. Okay. I, I think that's really, really important to note that, but it all comes back to Kevin. Kevin's the, the, the whole backbone of this thing and he's done the right things and, and made this thing what it is. So with that said, uh, the future is really bright. Um, we are right in the midst of some opportunities that um, I'm super excited about on the baseball side. Um, you know, my son's in the 25 class. When we get done with them, I'm going to be able to rest and breathe and go back. I've, there's some things I want to do that are unusual. I want to go back to a youth team that, you know, I can, for instance, I don't know how to say that. I don't want to let some of this stuff out, but one of the things I want to do is I want to, I want to do a different thing with, with maybe MLB RBI through the 12. Um, and I can do that where I don't have a kid now and I can go back cause my son's, you know, through it when his class gets through, I want to first make sure that all the kids in the 2025 class find their college. And that's my job every day now is to do that. I want to do that. But we have some exciting things that I'm not going to share. But we're in the midst of a couple of opportunities that are pretty incredible. If those happen and you see it, you need to call me back and I'll discuss those things. But but job number one, 25 class, getting them to their homes in college. Um, Job number two, taking care of my kid. And then job number three is is going back and doing something else. But if we get the things I think are going to happen that are happening, it's going to be a pretty impactful thing. And then I would say as an organization, the softball stuff's getting ready to take off for us. Um, and you'll see that, you know, become really a big deal moving forward, I think. Yeah. Well, I'm excited for it. I'm excited to, you know, see what's going on here. Whenever that happens to be the stuff you don't want to share, I'm, <laughs> I'll be, you know, I'll be scrolling through on my JKR podcast account one day and see Texas 12 post something. I'll be like, shoot, that's what, that's what Greg was talking about. Uh, but no, yeah. I'm excited for that. I'm excited to dig into, you know, the Texas 12 here, these next, you know, five, six weeks digging into, you know, your different coaches, coaches on the coaching staff. 
um, different players, different alumni, stuff like that. Just super excited for that. I'm really appreciative and, and very thankful and blessed to, you know, have this opportunity to highlight the Texas 12. Um, so I want to thank you for that. And, you know, thank you for, you know, this hour and a half, hour, 45 minutes for the <laughs> conversation today. Really thankful for that. And just really appreciate you coming on the Jake Hare podcast. Well, thank you, Jace. I, I would say, man, hey, uh, get rid of your sport marketing and do that for another one. I'll send you some guys to talk to and uh, <laughs> you can do that. And be, that'll be fun for you, too. But and those guys might help you get a job, man. You know, you never know. So uh, thank you. Uh, do what you got to do with it, brother.